Welcome to Threshold Stories, crossing thresholds one story at a time. I'm your host, Jeff Gora. Today's Threshold Story is two women near and dear to me. Both are Ironman athletes and Ironman coaches with unique insight into the sport. Hopefully over the next 45 minutes to an hour, you'll get to hear their stories and what they think of some of the more important issues facing triathletes, specifically female triathletes today. Leanne Moeller is a mom with two teenaged kids who's competed in Ironman competitions and short sprint triathlons for multiple decades now. Sharon Kuntz was my original coach when I entered multi-sport endurance racing and has been competing since the 80s in triathlon. When I asked Sharon how many triathlons she's done, she said a couple hundred, I believe. Ladies, thanks. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Glad you're here. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. You know, it's unique that we get to have thoughtful, experienced women talk about women's events in sport, because when you think about women's event, what comes to your mind? Morning talk shows on TV, uh, soap operas and stuff like that, which is dysfunctional, you know, (laughs) chauvinistic. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want. But today we're going to talk about endurance racing. And unless I've mistaken myself here, you both have done it a few times. I would say so. I would say so. So, um, Let's just let's just let's just jump right into it, Leanne. Um, how did you get into endurance sports? So my original background in high school and in through college was um, that of a I was on track to be a professional ballerina. Um, no kidding. Yep. So and so much for screening the applicants, Mister Producer. Right. I didn't know this. <laughs> yes. So um, and Sharon, did you know this the ballerina side? No. Okay, keep going. Okay. My mother was. Okay. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know that. Okay. So um, that is is kind of an, in, at the time, I didn't think of it as an elite sport, but now that I'm older and I understand what sport is, that is truly an elite sport. Um, I went to college on a full scholarship for it. Could have danced out of college but I just got really burnt out with the lifestyle because it's a very different lifestyle and a very different mindset. Um, you know, in ballet, it's um, it's all about presentation and how you appear mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. Um, so there is kind of this, and this has changed somewhat now, but back when I was in it, it there is kind of this message of look pretty, be small, do what you're told, and, you know, don't rock the boat. So you are this sort of elite athlete also in this environment of, of listening and doing what everybody else is telling you to do, not really having a lot of autonomy. Um, wow. So, so it's, it's opposed to being, and, and I'm just saying this from my point of view, I'm not saying this is true in all ballet cultures, but my experience with it was mm-hmm. um, that it, didn't feel 100% empowering. The environment that went along with it was not what I would describe as a healthy mm-hmm. healthy environment for teaching women to, to be strong and powerful and so, to think for yourself. So there's a streaming miniseries on one of the networks, I don't know who they are, about ballet, and yes. it's called, I don't know if you've seen it, called Flesh and Blood. I haven't seen that. No, it's yeah. Eight or ten episodes. Right. It's a day in the life of being in yes. New York Ballet. Right. And it, and, and it depicts it as a pretty horrible environment. It, 
and not it, just from not the, the training case. side. It's yeah, the people, it's, the, it's the, not, those in charge seem to be horrible people. It, it definitely can be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's changing some. And it, and it also depends on the company and it depends on the environment. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, you definitely will find some, um, some right. power-hungry people sure. who just... You know, and then there's the whole... Well, let's bridge from ballet, because that's where you started. Right. So what, what was that transitional moment when you said, you know what, swim, bike, run is for me? I had um, moved out to Colorado after college, and I lived in Boulder. And that is kind of the triathlon mecca of the world. Now, that was back in the early to mid-90s. So triathlon was just kind of starting to take off. But, um, you know, we had people like Dave Scott... Um, mm-hmm. Paula Newby Fraser, you know, lots and lots of, of up and coming or already established pro athletes in the area. Um, and I remember I was, I, I had sort of started running once I moved out to Colorado cause I still wanted to keep moving. I needed something to do mm-hmm. to move my body. And, um, I was trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to do. I was straight out of college with a dance major. What are you going to do with that, you know? <laughs> so I, I thought, well, you know. Waitress at an upscale uh, cafe or I, something? I did that somewhat. Imagine yes, that. I did. But I thought, you know. Um, I could see that getting between tables and blessing or whatever the case Yeah. Was. So I, uh, for some reason, got in my head that it might be fun to be a lifeguard. And in Colorado. I, in Colorado. Okay. And I, I had to be able to swim to do it. So took the lifeguard training class, and the first thing they said was swim a 500, and I about swallowed the pool two laps in. <laughs> needless to say, I, I didn't really make the time cut off in the, in the pretest. So I worked really, really hard to get up to that 500 yards, and it consisted of mostly breaststroke. And, um, and then I thought, well, I have this mountain bike, and I kind of ride around on it, and mm-hmm. maybe I'll try one of these triathlon things. And um, I, I honestly knew absolutely nothing. The first triathlon I did was the Inglewood Sprint in uh, Inglewood, Colorado. It's in a business park. And the day before that race, I went with a friend of mine. We were going to pre-ride the bike course. And I had a mountain bike, and she had a road bike. And mm-hmm. I realized at that point what a difference there was in speed between a mountain bike and a road bike. So I ended up going to a bike shop that night and renting a 10 speed with the shifters, you know, yeah, the perfect the time to, to introduce time. new equipment and new nutrition it's, is the night exact, before the race. Right, perfect. Exactly. Um, All you right. Know, and I, for those of you rookies listening in, <laughs> do not do it. Leanne yeah, just don't did. do what I don't do what I do. Do don't do as I do, it, do right. as I say. Right. right. Um, the, this part of her coaching manual has been deleted. Yes. Right <laughs> um, but I, I, I did the event. It was a pool swim. I ended up pretty much breaststroking the whole thing. And, um, made it through the bike and, and, and the run. And I had, you know, I wore these bright pink Lycra shorts and a bathing suit. And, um, and, but when I finished, I thought that I was the, the, you were it. I was it. That was so, I mean, it was just, you were looking for the Olympic gold right there. That's right. And so you would be okay with silver, but this is pretty cool, you know? And so Mm -hmm. then, then I kind of started, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I want to go from a sprint and do something a little bit longer. Where did that come from? The idea that short, is not enough because most people think of the first sprint and they think of an hour or two sure and you're now thinking well let's double that right well i was in an environment where every i mean i was around the best of the best and um seeing seeing the best of the best and hearing about their events and um i always like a challenge and so i thought you know well if i did this and 
wasn't that hard. I think maybe I'd like to try something a little longer. And each time I did a race a little bit longer, I always said, well, maybe then I want to try the next one up a little bit longer. Um, and it took me, I don't know, five or six years to work up to doing a full Ironman. Sharon and I actually both, I did my first Ironman with Sharon. It was, the, it was Lake Placid in 99. So everybody's now getting the connection here between these two. Yes, okay. yes. Um, I, moved, I met Sharon when I moved to North Carolina um, from Boulder, and she was one of the very first people I met in the triathlon world. And uh, Same here. Yeah. So she, she's been kind of like a mentor and, and good friend since then. Um, but then I did Ironman Lake Placid, and um, that's a whole story in itself of, sure. of <laughs> comedy of errors because <laughs> we just didn't know much back then. We really didn't. Um, so give us a year. When was that Lake Placid? 99. 99. So 20 years ago. For, yes. For those of you time stamping. Yes. Um, did bikes have even shifters back then? I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I rode a 30-pound Serata road bike with steel Serata road bike with clip-on aero bars for Lake Placid. For the whole 112 mm-hmm. miles. And I thought it was the best bike, you know. Ever. Ever. Because it kind of was one of the best bikes ever back then. Mm-hmm. And so that, that event in 1999, that first Ironman. Yes. Talk about for the listening community and you're approaching the finish line and you know you're about to get the title. <laughs> right. What was that like? It was amazing. Um, in Lake Placid, you finish in the speed skating oval, the Olympic ski, speed skating mm-hmm. oval. Right. So it, it really is kind of the feeling of, of running into a stadium and, yeah. you know, having the whole crowd cheer you on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just so incredibly proud of myself. And I had had, I had had so much fun that day, despite the fact that half of my nutrition content came out over the first half of the run. Um, <laughs> but uh, crossing that finish line was was. Really, you know, I cannot have a conversation with triathlon if some negative nutrition comment isn't (laughs) a part of it. I think it's inseparable. No, I, I, uh, I call that race the Ironman buffet because, again, like I knew nothing about nutrition, and I decided to calculate how many calories I was going to burn per hour on the bike, and then try to ingest that calories (laughs) per hour on the bike. And somebody made a comment to me and said, "Just take anything that sounds good." So I'm not kidding you, Mike. My bike jersey was stuffed with oatmeal cream pies, Pop-Tarts, <laughs> peanut butter crackers, protein bars, some sugary sweet energy drink in the front, Pringles, um, bananas, and I really did try to ingest most so of this that. this quasi-suicidal. It was. I got off and my stomach was as hard as a rock. And uh, the run... Didn't go so well. <laughs> Yet you kept doing it. I did. How many of those have you done now? Four. Holy cow. That's five more than most people do, right? Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> the total. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you're going to keep doing them. You know, Ironman... Um, no, not Ironman, just triathlon yes, in general. Yes, absolutely. Do you see yes. yourself doing it till the as end? As long as I can. It's pretty yes. darn awesome. Mm-hmm. So that was a great story, but Sharon... You get your due here because so however long she and I have been into this, you've been in it way longer. So what do you remember about triathlon numero uno? Well, I remember her in the med tent. <laughs> Is that it? The med tent. They, they put her down to give her a massage, and 
sat her up, and she passed out <laughs> because her blood sugar dropped. Well, then and I had she went, boom. no electrolytes during the whole thing. She had no. Yeah. So <laughs> low potassium. Yes. yes. Sent her to the hospital because they had no clue what to do with right. Ironman Lake Placid. <laughs> right. There's yeah. There's there wasn't any history there, and how no. in the world could a paramedic get trained in extreme endurance output? They didn't know what to do. Right. They really didn't. I wonder if there's anything now taught to them. Not that you guys can answer. Oh, yeah, there is a lot taught. The paramedics get taught that? Because you now have medical directors. Oh, that's right. And they have knowledge of what's of the sport um, Mm -hmm. injuries that can occur. So let's jump to you. uh, Triathlon number one, what was it and where was it? Um, It was at Lake Norman at the Ramsey Creek Triathlon. It was International distance. Uh, so you didn't start with a sprint. Your first one ever was international. There, there weren't sprints. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, so, which is fine because the international distance is a good distance. Um, and there was a few halves and a few, and, no, and at that time, no Ironmans in the continental United States. Just the Kona one and Penticton and things and, like that. Yeah. So what do you remember about triathlon number one? Um, People yeah. like to know these stories. One is I wore I wear contacts, so at that time I didn't. So I had to put my glasses by my bike and practice going from the swim to my bike so I wouldn't get lost. Wow. And, and, not, <laughs> and at that time, they had changing tents at Lake Norman to change into. So you would, after the swim, you'd change into something no, else? I, I didn't. But I put a pair of shorts on over okay. my bathing suit, which is a very dangerous thing to do because shorts catch on the bike seat, <laughs> and you can fall off your bike. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but no one wants to see their butt showing at that time. And then it was, screw it, we're just going to go in bathing suits after that. All right. <laughs> so that, I re- that's what I remember. Though, and I remember on the finish of the, of the run, there was a, a woman who now, I think she lives in Texas now, but... She was, um, I was competing against her, and my shoes came untied, my shoelaces, and I had to stop to retie them, mm-hmm. and she got ahead of me. <laughs> uh-huh. I went to lake, lace locks after that. That was it? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> One day of burnt hair of loss from equipment, and it never happens yeah. again. Yeah. Isn't that the truth throughout the sport? Yes. Once your equipment fails you once, you never let it happen That's again. That's right, yeah. I've met many people who, not many, but I met one guy who has three tubes he always bikes with because he's had two flats in one race before. Well, when I did Kona, (laughs) I carried two, I I ride tubular tires, I still do, and I carried two of them Mm -hmm. because they weren't going to come and fix your tire because you were an age group athlete Mm -hmm. and you spent all that time and money training for it, you better be prepared to fix it. So what do you remember about the other athletes in your first triathlon? Just the, just woman, the blur. Just the woman I was trying to pass. There was one <laughs> woman, was, and that was it. That was it. What do you remember about the race conditions? Because I remember the race conditions of my first event, like it was yesterday. Well, the, the swim, uh, the swim, the first thing you go out, and you, you, know, you start hyperventilating, and then your carbon dioxide builds up, and then hyperventilates some more, so you have to breaststroke for a few minutes to calm down. Um, and that probably happened to every race until I did Kona. Really? Yeah. 
Wow. So a lot of people listening in, they think that the athlete who makes it to Kona has perfected all aspects at all times of every, of every event. And that's, well, that's it, obviously not true. No, not in 1991 when you didn't know anything about it. Right. <laughs> Nutrition, you didn't know the distances. Right. You know, you read a book by Scott Tinley about how to do your transitions. So how did you prepare for that event? For which, Kona? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend who was an exercise physiologist who um, didn't live in town anymore, but he gave me some ideas on how to do it. I just went out and did the distances. One after another, backed them up. Long bike, long run. Long bike, long run. Um, did enough swimming to get through the water. Right. And then just eat and drink what you could. Um, also had another friend who had hyponatremia, so I knew something about sodium back then, but mm-hmm. we didn't have salt tablets necessarily available, um, but trying to keep from getting hyponatremic. So let's jump to this nutrition subject, since you both brought it up in, in failed ways before. Do you guys, I know you both work with people. Mm-hmm. How early in the conversation when you work with people do you bring up nutrition now? For me, it's pretty, it's one of the first conversations we have. Right. Especially for long course racing. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell people it's, it's for, for Ironman, it's really for sports, it's swim, bike, run, and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's so easy. It, it, it does take a lot of trial and error to figure out exactly what works mm-hmm. for a particular athlete. And if you don't practice it in training, you're not going to know if it's going to work on race day. Yeah, and so for those listening in, you, I hope you caught that nugget of wisdom. Practice nutrition. You don't just practice swim, bike, run. You practice eating. Yes. That what the foods are you're going to get either during the course or what you bring with and you. And for myself as a coach, you know, sometimes I'll encounter an athlete where we've tried many, many different things and the athlete is still having GI issues or still having bonking issues. And in that case, I'm not a certified sports dietitian. Um, so I do have a couple of professionals that I will then refer them to and we'll all work as a group to try to figure out what's going on with that athlete. Mm-hmm. But it really is just so, so important. I, I can't stress it enough for people. Sharon, I remember about you teaching me. You, you, went, you could tell I had an attention deficit issue early on in our relationship. <laughs> so you would go right for it. You would say, you need this much of this every hour. And you just let me, and you just said, okay, all right, let me. I needed to process it in a one-sentence format. Mm-hmm. If you'd killed me with the why, I would have missed it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I, I was I was needing I just needed the minimal amount. But there. and for one thing with nutrition, for me, I didn't figure out until, gosh, probably ten years into the sport, was the sodium aspect of it. Um, I, I had a history of finishing long course races and just either during the run fading and feeling nauseous and lightheaded and like fuzzy throughout my whole body, or I would finish and thirty minutes later that would hit. And it was not till I figured out that my body actually does really well on a consistent dosing of sodium during the event that it really turned things around for me and how I'm supposed to perform. So that's Mm -hmm. another aspect that we really try to look at. I try to look at with athletes is making sure we get those electrolytes in there in addition to the calories and the hydration. You're preaching to the choir that once you've cramped, it's one of those moments that you say, what do I do to make this... You can't just make cramps go away like that. You ever seen the people try to suck the mustard packets thinking yes. they'll be good in 30 seconds? Right. And you think, well, you're not. Mm-hmm. Who told you you were going to be good in 30 seconds? Right. 
never had that. Yeah, word. and it's not just cramps. You know, it's it's it can cause nausea. It can cause that kind of out of body, lightheaded experience. I've had that happen <laughs> many <laughs> times, so mm-hmm. I know what it feels like. So when your mind starts playing games with you, but maybe I'm going to jump to the bike because we have we spend more time on the bike than any other aspect of the sport. What do you do to, to try to keep yourself grounded as your mind goes up? Let me tell you what I do. I write music because I, I, I have perfect pitch so I can, and I'll start coming up with lyrics and then I'll start putting chord progressions on them. And then I start really scaring the people at the aid stations because I start singing them. <laughs> and so I'll write songs sometimes about people. I've written a song about one of my chickens once, <laughs> you named Ginger, while cycling 100 miles in arrow, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. So what's y'all's copingism for handling your mental, the absurdity of the, ment- of the mind during those long rides? Well, you try and bring it back to what you're doing. Because if you go off and you start <clears throat> daydreaming, you're going to lose focus on the bike. You're going to slow down. You're better than me. I have a beep on my power meter that tells me I'm going too low on the power. That's how well, that, otherwise my, I'm, not think, I'm not focused like you are, I don't think. Because we didn't start with power. We didn't start. We had computers that sometimes worked, sometimes <laughs> didn't. And Timex stopwatches. And Timex stop. And we didn't have, I did not have cadence, which was a mistake. They did have cadence back when I started riding a bike in the, the early 80s. But it was all wired. So that was always a hassle. So I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And that was probably a mistake, not having cadence on there, because I didn't train to that. And now... I find that that's a, one of the better things to focus on is to focus on your cadence as opposed to your speed or your power because that's going to vary all over the place. Heart rates don't focus on that unless it's irregular um, because that changes. Mm-hmm. But just stay focused uh, on what you're doing. Look around a little bit, then go back to focusing. What do you, what do, you do, Leanne? What's your... Uh, so I have an... When your mind goes I have a tool. Bonko. I have a toolbox. So I like, oh. and, and I think it's good to, to have I'm a, listening here a lot as of a tools student. in your toolbox. Um, and it kind of depends on how um, uncomfortable I am. So um, when, I am, when I am on the bike and I'm feeling great, I'm doing my best to try to keep myself in that state. So I'm making sure that I'm keeping up with my nutrition, that yep. I'm pacing things right. I'm... Um, I'm really kind of doing some some observation of the scenery around me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying hi to volunteers. I'm I'm talking to athletes. I'm trying to to fill up my tank to keep myself in that zone. But now we know that's not realistic in any long course race. You're going to encounter periods where that's not happening. Well, I mean, you um, can do that for most of the race, right? But but so what I start to do is if I start to notice, okay, I'm I'm starting to get a little bit irritated here. You know, I kind of am not feeling quite in the zone anymore. First thing I do is, is check in with my nutrition, make sure that's all on par, mm-hmm. make sure I'm pacing everything right. If those two things are on, on point, then I'll take a deep breath first because taking a deep breath kind of helps to calm your nervous system down. Um, and then I have a number of strategies I use. One is to um, visualize an event or a race where I really felt fantastic. Mm. And I'll try to go into my head in that space and, and somehow a lot of times that'll, that'll bring my body back into that Zen type feeling. Um, another strategy that I'll use, you know, if I'm just 
really, really, really not wanting to be on the bike anymore. I try to simplify my thoughts as much as I can because at that point, too many words is added stress. Um, so at that point, I'll just, I'll just focus on one aspect of my form. So I might say, okay, I'm going to take the next five minutes and all I'm going to focus on is keeping even pressure on the pedal strokes. Um, Do you use computers for that or just feel? I just go by feel because um, I also grew up without all these devices. Yeah. Um, you had an and the, abacus and Yeah, beads right, exactly. And, stuff like that. Um, and, then, and then another is a, like a, a, a mantra or a phrase like um, steady, strong. This is what steady, you've trained for. strong. Um, or, you know, and, or sometimes to singing songs in my head, not that I've written. Now we're talking. But, you know, like when I, my kids were younger, for some reason, I would always have like high school musical in my head or, oh, or, right the, or the wiggles. One race I did, you know, all I sang was <laughs> mashed wiggles. potato, mashed potato. <laughs> but it, it's got a great rhythm to it and it got me through. All right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think having a toolbox and just like nutrition. So anybody who's about to meet Leanne, just go up to her and reference yes. the wiggles and watch her just lose any sense uh, of composure. Right. It's a good way to start. But you, but just like in with nutrition, you have to practice that stuff in training. So that yeah. you know how to do it on race day mm-hmm. and you're not just left out on there in race day going, I, I, this is not going well. I don't feel good. What the heck do I do now? You need to know you have strategies. Sure. Good point. Good takeoff. I think the training is harder than the race. I agree. So if you train, you have no, dist- you have to face focus on the road, the cars, you're eating, but in the race, now you have people cheering you on every five miles at aid stations. Mm-hmm. So that becomes, the races become much easier. Mm-hmm. And if you do metal focus, uh, particularly more on the run than the bike, but if you actually f- remember like, going up a hill and how hard sometimes hills are at the top, but you make it over. So you get into the race, you say, I've done that and I can do that. I may slow down, but mm-hmm. I right. can make it over the top. Um, in the race, you do have to worry more about, you are spending time making sure that the people in front of you are staying in front of you or not going off the side, or you're saying, I'm on your left, and they move left. And, so that, mm-hmm. and you don't, um, so I think if, mm-hmm. if you think about it, training, then when it comes to the race, it's just a lot, race is much easier. Yeah, sure, volumetrically, the amount of effort you put into training can sometimes be a 50 times multiplier to race day. For sure. You know? Total volume. It's crazy. So I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring both of you together wasn't just necessarily your experience as triathletes, because you both have a bucket load, but um, as women in triathlon. So according to Rocky, the USAT, USA triathlon leader, the number of people in triathlon is relatively flat. That said, year in and year out, that said, there's a growth in women, specifically middle-aged women and up, and that they're coming in at an accelerated rate. And other, and other genres are dropping out, regardless of the why they're dropping out. Why do you think it is that women, 30 and up, are coming into triathlon at a greater rate? I yes, think it's I, speculation. No one's asking them as right. groups. but What I've seen change in, in women in racing is that the women used to be very competitive, and I don't see that now. I see it's doing it. It's, it's a participation sport. You get the medal. Um, mm-hmm. You're doing it as a group thing. And the competitiveness is just, there are people who are very fast, but there's, there's less of them. 
if you would, and there's more of the slower, we're doing it as a group effort. And, I th um, and that's good because that's good for health that people are exercising. But in terms mm -hmm. of um, excelling in the sport, I, I don't see that's changed. I think I think it's flat. It's flat. Or dropped even? It's maybe flat. When I started, there were very few women. Because um, I started in 85, 84. Um, and so the same women that I did, I raced then, some of us who haven't fallen totally apart are still <laughs> racing. Um, Madonna, you mentioned Madonna Buddha earlier. Um, my goal was always to finish ahead of her. <laughs> always. Always. I mean, she's older than me, but she could get out of the water sometimes faster. So um, that was always number one goal. And the same women that I raced with back um, in the 80s, I mean, uh, they're still doing mm -hmm. worlds uh, and going to age group worlds, or they're doing sprints now. And they're still competitive. But I just, what I see the difference is that there, are, there may be more women because it's now acceptable you can do that. But the, the competitiveness just isn't there. What do you think, Leanne? So, so Sharon, are you meaning competitiveness in terms of um, like the vibe people are giving off? Like trying to do their best, doing their fastest, to try and win as opposed to... Get so it's not just what I can do. I, I want to try to be better than everybody else, right, too. Right, right. And maybe that's just not... Um, but you see it when you see kids. If you work with kids' races and kids' triathlons, you can see it doesn't matter the gender. Some kids are very competitive, mm -hmm. and other kids wait to hold their hands to get to the bike together, and they're, they're doing it as a group effort. Mm -hmm. right? Sure. So, so, so for me, I remember when I first started out in, in Boulder, um, boy, was it not a friendly vibe. Yes. Um, and, and, and especially from the women. <laughs> no kidding. My first yeah. Olympic. I'm coming at this from the male's perspective. Yes, my first Olympic, I remember standing there in transition area, and there was a woman who put her bike on the rack, and another woman got mad because her bike was too close. And um, she said, well, I'm going to be out of the water before you, so I'm not going to be able to get my bike off around yours. And... The other woman said, oh, I usually, she was kind of humble. She said, I usually come out of the water pretty fast, too. She go, and the woman was like, well, I don't know who you are because I've never seen your name and you never come out before. <laughs> and, I mean, there was just kind of that vibe. Holy cow, yeah. piranha. Yes, and so um, it wasn't very welcoming, a come one, come all kind of thing, especially in Boulder at that time. I think things have really changed out there now. But I wonder what those time, women are like outside of transition. My, my experience with that has been that um, not someone I'd really want to hang out with. Uh, that was so polite. Well, I mean, you know, um, what I have found that has changed, and maybe it's just because I personally now have a radar for people walking around with that kind of vibe, and I don't really want to, I just don't really want to be part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but in general... I find when Sharon said people aren't as competitive, I find people aren't as, um, they're much more inclusive and friendly. And um, there's, more, yeah. there's more women doing it, therefore there's more 
opportunities for women to train together and do mm-hmm. things together. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot more initiatives for that. There's Women for Try. Um, try there, it for there's life. Try It for Life. I, I think social media has helped get the word out about a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. When I see now, when I walk into a local try, I mean, it's just fun, friendly people. Um, so I think that the intimidation part is um, a little less um, threatening than than it used to be. I think that one of the reasons is when we, mm-hmm. when I started, there were so few of us. So you're competing while you're competing against other women. You're really competing against the men. Yes, because the men are very competitive. Um, Thank you, testosterone. <laughs> well, okay. uh, that and and there was few. There was fewer men and women doing it. So the ones that signed up were trying to do well and mm-hmm. to beat each other. And men grow up more with team sports. Ball sports, too, just in general. And I grew up before Title IX. There were no sports. We had basketball. We couldn't cross the midline because your uterus would fall out. <laughs> you ran to half court, and you had to quit at the white line. Otherwise, you'd lose your body parts. It would just your fall out. female reproductive yes. track and would just become part of the field of play. <laughs> I mean, gynecologists would write about that. And oh, we, gosh. The things were posted at the Y when I came here. You shouldn't run long because this is bad for your uterus. Boy, have we come a long way. Yes, we Oh, have. God. <laughs> yes. <Have> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so go uh, ahead. So I think women, I think Leanne was right. They didn't talk to each other. It was... It was very much non-inclusive, um, and I think that it is much more inclusive now. Sure. I see that in women I coach. They very much prefer working out in groups or training in groups or competing well, in groups. And, and I've been really lucky myself in that um, I've been able to find a really talented group of strong women up in the area where I am to train with, but they're strong women without egos. So we can all go out Mm -hmm. and and run or ride and push each other and support each other, but nobody's trying to show how great they are. Mm. And that's for me in in training for- That's a gift. It is a gift, it really is a gift. Um, I did find that moving from Colorado to the Charlotte area, even back in 99, while there was still more of that kind of competitive, exclusive type environment, um, I did find the difference between Boulder at that time and this area at that time was a lot more friendly mm-hmm. and a lot more inclusive. I like that. Mm-hmm. So let me go down a philosophic path with you because we were sharing, you mentioned the difference between men and women, and I want to take some of our remaining time here and hit two topics. I want to hit um, the transgender topic and its impact on triathlon. Before I hit that, I want to hit the, um, let me just jump right into a story, because stories do a better job at telling it than anything else. So my son, as you guys know, is employed by the local NFL affiliate, and I'll just leave it at that. And he um, routinely knows of events that happen at the local football field that involve women's soccer, and he won't go watch the women's national team, even though they won the World Cup, because he said they stink. And I go, what do you mean? He says, if they go out there and play a men's team, it's apples to... Pigs, it's apples to pig's feet. It's not even close. Um, there's a story published, you can Google it, how the 
uh, women played an under 14 boys team as part of their buildup, and they lost five to two in that in the process of that in that game. And um, none of those boys had been playing. None of those boys had been alive as long as the women been alive. So the question comes up. It's a kind of a simplistic question. The gap that you see in outcomes in triathlon for men and women, like you know, you go to Kona, the high, the fastest finishing well challenge, the fastest finishing man is seven hours and change. Women, it's eight hours and change. Like there's a pretty substantial gap there. Is this gap bridgeable with good science, or is this gap just what it is? Seems to be bridgeable, um, possibly on the marathon level, and that's already showing. Mm-hmm. Um, can for the listeners, and can you tell anybody how it's showing? Well, at Chicago, mm-hmm. um, a Kenyan woman went two fifteen, and just what was it a weekend before when um, uh, Kipchoge Kipchoge did just under two hours. And whether that that distance is coming down, I mean, men have more strength, they have more muscles, uh, even though he's very, very teeny, mm. um, he still has more muscle mass, he has a larger heart, so the, physiologically, men tend to be, have more to get them where it's the strength, and you can see that in triathlon, if it's if it's a hilly bike, um, men will be faster on the bike. The swim tends to be, there are women who are much, much faster than the men, and I don't, so genetics might not play as much part there. But for the run and the bike, um, just the differences in, in body types. Mm-hmm. Um, Should we be trying to bridge that, in your opinion? Well, I don't know what that means. Because so, the, so we want we, it. We want it to be. I'm, I'm going to make something up because no one's. It should be the case that both men and women, correctly trained, can do a two-hour Olympic. No, I think you have to train um, women to to play against women and men to play against men. Now, my granddaughter is doing polo pony. Uh, you were saying and, that at once. And it is at, in the Olympics. There is no distinction between male and female. So they play on the same playing field. Now, interesting, I don't know about the horses, but about the riders. <laughs> but and the riders, men and women, play together mm-hmm. against each other. Um, so that's more of an equal thing, so it's a skill level there. Mm-hmm. In terms of your son talking about soccer, soccer is a very boring sport to watch for Americans because no one's scoring. And there's no commercials. And, um, and in women, and soccer got big because why? In the United States, because when they won their first match years ago, she took her shirt off and there was a jog bra. Oh, my God, there's someone with a jog bra on. So now everybody's like looking at women's soccer. Um, I think there's, that, there's some truth to that. Um, same with uh, Olympic-level um, volleyball. They're wearing bikinis. Not that their skill level isn't bad. It's very, very good. It's very high class. But um, would they compete against the men? No, they're not as tall as the men. But genetically, they're taller. Like Leanne and I would not do well at volleyball because we're not tall enough. Um, same with swimming. We're not tall enough. We don't. So there's some genetic body parts there. What do you think, Leanne? Is that, that gap between men and women, is it bridgeable? I think. 
that it, or should it be I, ritual? I think it depends on the distance of the event. You know, it's there's we're starting to see as ultra distance races, you know, fifty miles and here. plus. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're starting to see there is that the playing field levels out a lot more. And in fact, um, a woman just won the big backyard ultra race for the first time ever. That's mm-hmm. the race where you have a four oh. mile loop and and the last person standing is the person who wins the race. And um, at that point, I think it, there's a lot more um, mental grit and uh, pain tolerance that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why women have babies and not, mm-hmm. <laughs> not men, you know. You're um, preaching. You know, preach so I'm a dad with a wife. Right. I get it. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. no. And so I think, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do a hundred yard dash, um, you know, you, you put a male athlete with super huge quad muscles and a female athlete with also super, super huge quad muscles, but certainly not as big as the men's, he's mm-hmm. going to generate a lot more power in a hundred yards. And that's just one of the genetic biological facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think you have to look at the distance of the event that you're talking about and the type of event that you're talking about when we're looking at bridging that gap between men and women. Okay. So let's jump to that transgender question. You guys have probably both read, it's happening at literally all levels. People who are biologically men decide that they're not going to be associated with that gender and they become women and they compete against women and they go from average mediocre male athlete to first place in everything female athlete based on the rules. What kind of impact do you think that's ish, it will have on us socially or is having on us socially? Well, transgenders have been around since forever. They're around in everyday life, so it's nothing new. Um, at the moment, I said like last week in Lausanne, UCI, the Cycling Federation, mm-hmm. I think it was golf, tennis, maybe rowing. A couple federations are work are together trying to come out with some um, guidelines. Uh, track and field is, I can't, fit, they get, they're the ones that the media focus on. That's what the media focus yeah. But they're coming out with a level of testosterone that should be allowed, and that's, or not allowed for women. I mean, there's a woman at the Y I see now who's obviously transgender. So it, it is what it is. And what I think is that the federations need to come together and to come out with a ruling, and then science keep looking at it. Yes. And that's the only way you can... I think the same thing. So, so this, is, this is a subject that I talk about a lot because it's, it's something Good, that I don't... Good, because people want to hear about no, it. Oh, sure. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of a fascinating topic to me when it comes to the right. ethics of sports. Um, it's also a subject that, like many topics in our country nowadays, it can be very polarizing. And so it, it's often hard why for I'm people with two points, different points of view to actually have a productive conversation about it. There tends to be a lot of labeling and name calling mm-hmm. if you share a different point of view. Um, so for myself, you know, having grown up as a ballerina um, in the 80s, right? Uh, my, from early on, my, some of my dearest friends were gay. And so um, I've always felt very strongly in the fact that people need to be who they were born to be or who they feel they need to be. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been supportive of the LGBTQT community. Um, but we haven't really had this acceptance. We don't have 100% acceptance yet, but it's only been in the past five, six years, really, that our country as a whole is becoming more accepting. You know, mm-hmm. gay marriage is now accepted, and as a result, transgender issues are becoming more accepted. And um, in the past, it was kind of hidden hidden under the rug. Mm-hmm. You, wouldn't, sure. you wouldn't see people coming out in a sport and, and owning that they're a transgender athlete. Um, and so it wasn't an issue we really had to address very much because we just didn't have many instances. Or we didn't know of them. Right, or know of them. Buried. Um, and, and it's kind of like, you know, Sharon said, you know, back when she was growing up, your uterus would fall out when you were running half court. I still it wasn't until women. It wasn't until women started participating in sport, in in you know, in marathons and things that there was a reason to have science backing up and doing more research on it. So now, as a result of all these women competing, we have a lot more science and research on you know women's bodies and women's physiology and that all that kind of stuff. I personally don't feel like there's enough scientific research and data yet on the subject of comparing transgender women with naturally born women. Um, These are some issues that I think about, though, and questions that I have when I think about this subject. And um, I don't have an answer yet for myself. I... The verdict's still out. It's for you. still out. I, w- I want to know more. I want to see more science. Um, if science can tell me that it's absolutely 100% even playing field, that a transgender male, once taking hormone suppression medication um, it, and living life as a woman, it, is not going to have any sort of advantage, biological advantage, um, that would be something for me where I would say then it's not an issue. But these are the questions I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think there might someday be a distinction between um, people who have made the transition before puberty, which is now more and more happening. Look at Jazz Jennings. Um, you know, she she never went through puberty as a male. She oh. started her hormone suppression medication before she went through puberty. And so, you know, if you look at her, in she doesn't she's she didn't grow as tall as she probably would have. She doesn't have the same bone structure that she would have. She, you know, there's nothing about her that ever developed as a pubescent male. Um, but I look at my 13-year-old, 14-year-old son, and he's grown, he, he's going through puberty, and he's grown six inches in the past three months. Um, he, his, his, wow. his shoulders are broader. His bones are denser. Mm-hmm. His his muscles are stronger, despite the fact that I strength train all the time, and he he really doesn't. He's mm-hmm. just naturally stronger than me. I said this earlier um, to Sharon, but thank you, testosterone. Yeah, and yeah. and and he has he has the testosterone, and then the other thing that he has is he the, the ability to participate in male sports with other males. Mm-hmm. So there's that level of competition and intensity and and resources that are poured into male sports mm-hmm. that still aren't 100% equally put into women's sports, even mm-hmm. at the high school level um, in some situations. So um, so then I then I ask, okay, but then so then if a if a 
if a male at 30 years old decides that mm-hmm. he wants to transition to a woman and stops, you know, starts taking testosterone suppression medication, do we need to consider the physiological issues that from the first really 29 be, yes. years? And and I and again, I don't have a solid answer for that yet, but I think it's a it's a question to consider. Um, but I'll give you another point of view. So my son has a transgender girl in his class at school, and um, she's our school is a very inclusive, accepting community, mm-hmm. and she's been very well accepted and embraced. And I remember there was a cross. She was running cross country with the middle school team um, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and the day of the event, it was brought to the athletic director's attention that the rules in North Carolina still are you compete in the in the biological sex that you were born to. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was not a fast runner at all. You know, she was kind of towards the end. And I remember another mother and I just getting very up in arms about the whole thing and thinking like, this is not fair. This is, you know, but then I, then I started, then the athletic director brought up to me, you know, there's questions we don't have answered yet. You know, what would we, it's fine in this situation, but what would we do if this, if this kid had been the star of the track team as a male and then decided he wanted to become a she and compete on the women's team, we don't know answers yet to handle that yet. And so while we're still thinking about this, we're just going to make a blanket rule. So I think there's so much more science that has to be done. See, you've you've got a piece about you knowing that we're in the early, we're in the stone age of this. We are. And a lot of people are convinced that we're already in the industrial development age. And one of the things that I, you know, one of the, the issues that I see people running into these days is the assumption that if you are make asking these kinds of questions, that you are somehow not supportive of the LGBTQT society, or you're not supporting transgender individuals in their rights to live life that the way that they want to and have equal rights. And that um, that is certainly not the case. I think this reserves a lot of respectful discussion. Um, well, that's and, why we're yes, on this thing right now because right. it's impacting our community yes. it's in our community mm-hmm. and I have yet to see a single published anything whether it be podcast video podcast thoughtful story that tries to get people to come to peace with the fact that this is the stone age of the conversation because mm-hmm. everybody wants right to go to the conclusion line and here's how it's going to be right you know, I'm, I'm with I'm with you yeah. normally I'm not supposed to take an opinion on these <laughs> things, but I have I have an opinion on but, you know, when you think about children that, who are middle school, they come in, uh, since I have two grandchildren that are boys, the so one is 13 and one is 15, and they're not as tall as some other guys. And so they feel like, I mean, they're growing perfectly naturally. But they're at a disadvantage if they go on the playing field and there's some kid who's six mm-hmm. feet tall. So, I mean, I have a grandson who's, who's playing very high-level baseball, and yet there's boys who are fully mature males at 13, and he's a long way from that. And is you know, what do you do there? So they just base it on age as opposed to... Yeah, that's the current metric. For those sports that right. you just referenced, soccer is just like that. We had a kid named the Man Child when my <laughs> son played under twelve soccer because he was a full grown, shaved right. and everything, and he was the biggest kid. 
anywhere, and his team won the state championship because the man-child was right there. Yeah. I still remember that. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay that, we, that we're different. Yeah. We grow, especially we grow at different rates. From what I can tell, plants are that way, and moths are that way, and bacteria are that way, so it only makes sense that we are as well. Mm-hmm. So we're running out of time, so I want to give one question out there for the audience who's listening. Say I'm a woman, and I'm interested in triathlon, and I'm looking for a paragraph or two of guidance. And you're the paragraph. What do, what do you guide them? They're new to, the, new to the sport. Don't ask me the age. You pretend you know the age. What would you tell them? To get started in it. Start swimming, biking, and running. <laughs> Just jump I, right into the tools. Jump the right in, and so three sports. It's it's not three separate sports. It's swim, bike, run. So they have to be able to do all three. They need to go go out and try it. They do it with a group. That's the best way to get started. To get some advice mm-hmm. from some people who have been out and done it. Um, I like it. Leanne, what's yours? My, mine would be that. Anybody who puts their mind to it can do it, unless there's some underlying medical condition mm-hmm. and you've been instructed not to partake in right. certain kinds of exercise. But, um, you know, when I started out as an athlete, I was constantly finishing it back of the pack, way back of the pack. Mm-hmm. My first Olympic, I was 49th out of 50. Um, and, you know, I, I, I worked at it and worked at it and, and, and put my head down and just stayed dedicated. And, you know, I ended up going to Kona also, and being a pretty competitive age group athlete. But even for those who don't have that in mind, don't think you can't, because you can. Um, use your resources. There's tons of them out there. Find online groups. Find local training groups. Mm-hmm. Um, find other women who've done it, because most, most of us that have been doing it for a long time really love the excitement that we see in new triathletes and really just love helping mm-hmm. newbies get involved. Um, so kind of reach out and find your tribe too, mm-hmm. because more and more tribes are, are there for women in triathlon. Well, it's been a treat having you guys come on and tell stories from all times and all concepts here. And I'm, I appreciate you tackling some of the harder questions because in general they're avoided and we need to have the conversation publicly. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to today's show. We expect to have Sharon and Leanne come back on in a few months to talk about additional issues facing women in endurance sports. Since this topic isn't going to be ending anytime soon, expect more controversial questions and answers on Threshold Stories. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gora Team USA. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds, One Story at a Time. Ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks.